0: For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right. So we're going to be looking at Genesis 4, verse 1, and we're going to go all the way through chapter 5, entitled this section, Murderous Rage. It's actually a very famous passage about two individuals named Cain and Abel. Let's begin reading. Now, Adam had sexual relations with his wife, Eve, and she became pregnant. When she gave birth to Cain, she said, With the Lord's help, I've produced a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother and named him Abel. When they grew up, Abel became a shepherd while Cain cultivated the ground. So we're given a little bit of information about these two individuals, Cain and Abel, the first offspring of Adam and Eve. First of all, Cain was the firstborn son, and sometime later, Abel was born, so it's not clear if he was the secondborn son. There may have been other children, but he's prominent in this narrative, so Moses mentions him. The other thing to notice is that Cain cultivated the ground, so he was into agriculture. He was apparently a farmer, whereas Abel... He was a shepherd. He tended sheep and animals. So these guys were very different. Now, when it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. So harvest time signaled that there was going to be a sacrifice. And something went wrong. Apparently, Cain's offering didn't take. He was dealing with an unpredictable God who was a picky eater, I guess. Didn't like vegetables. And so it raises the question, what went wrong? Why didn't God accept Cain's sacrifice? I think, first of all, some people would say Abel's sacrifice was produce, whereas Cain sacrificed an animal. So it was the type of sacrifice that God was displeased with. For example, the ancient historian Josephus comments that the brothers, having decided to sacrifice God to God, Cain brought the first fruits of the cultivated ground and of the trees, while Abel brought milk And the firstlings of his flocks. So, the ancient Jewish historian who was a scholar of the Old Testament claims that the reason why God didn't accept Cain's sacrifice was because he brought in vegetables. Apparently, God didn't like vegetables, he was going low carb. And so, he's like, that's just not going to work. Look at what the Jewish philosopher Philo has to say, he says that Abel's sacrifice was living, whereas Cain's was lifeless. So, it wasn't the kind of sacrifice that he was giving, it was the type of sacrifice. Namely, that Abel brought a living sacrifice, an animal, whereas Cain's was lifeless. And yet, there's indications from the text right here in Genesis that tell us that, that isn't actually correct. Notice that it wasn't the type of offering that mattered. It was the heart of the one offering that mattered to God. There's something about Cain's attitude that displeased God. Not just what he brought. And you see passages like 1 Samuel 16 verse 7, which shows that God cares more... About the inner heart attitude than the outward appearance. This is when God sent Samuel the prophet to go and elect, to call the first or the second king of Israel, David. And Samuel picks the firstborn of Jesse's family, and God says, No, 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 that's not the right guy. It's actually the youngest dude, the youngest son, David. And the Lord confronts Samuel and says, the Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. In other words, when you look at what happened here with Cain and Abel, the outward appearance of the the situation seems to suggest that something was wrong with the sacrifice. And yet, God is more concerned about the heart. And so there was something going on internally With Cain that displeased God. You know, God can see right past our outward behavior and straight into our heart. Think about Isaiah 1, verse 11 and 13, where God confronts the nation of Israel for offering these sacrifices but without the right attitude. He says, The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? I have more than enough burnt offerings. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Stop bringing me meaningless offerings. So God's frustrated. He said, you guys are going through the motions. You're doing all the rituals that I prescribed. And yet, your heart's not into it. I don't care about your sacrifice. I don't care that it's the blood of bulls and lambs. I care about your heart. Isaiah 29, verse 3. God says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. God essentially was confronting the religious attitude that you see throughout our country today, really in many churches, where people will go through the motions, they'll do their rituals, they'll do their things that they, they believe God will be pleased with, and yet their heart is far away from God. What about Psalm 51? This was written shortly after David committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband, Uriah. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, And a broken and contrite heart. David understood that there was nothing that he could do to change his guilt. No sacrifice that could ever fix his problem. He knew that he needed to rely uh, exclusively on God's mercy. And that it was his heart attitude that would make him right before God. So what did Abel possess that made his sacrifice acceptable to God? Well, the author of Hebrews in the New Testament actually offers us a key insight. Hebrews 11.4 says, It was by faith that Abel brought a more acceptable offering to God than Cain did. So it was his faith in God that pleased God. And so it must suggest that Cain did not come to God with an attitude of faith. Just the opposite of what Abel did. So I think this raises the question, how how did the author of Hebrews know that it was by faith that Abel brought God an acceptable sacrifice? Because Genesis doesn't explicitly tell us that it was by faith that Abel brought this better sacrifice. Well, he quotes this Old Testament passage in Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4, where the author actually connects this idea of faith and righteousness. He says, my righteous ones will live by faith. He understood that it was by faith that we're able to please God, that it's by faith that we're able to establish a right relationship with him, not by our good works, not by trying to earn our way to him, but merely throwing ourselves on him and his mercy and trusting that he will give us salvation. So here are some facts about Cain when we think about, you know, the profile of Cain. First, he believed in God and he offered sacrifices. Secondly, he participated in re- religious rituals. He brought a sacrifice, which God told him to do. He may have even come to God with a sincere heart. You see this a lot of times where people who regard themselves as religious will do things out of sincerity, believing that God will accept them, and yet, according to the Bible, they're wrong. And so God didn't accept Cain's sacrifice. So why didn't he do this? Why didn't he accept Cain's sacrifice. I think, first of all, we have to deduce that Cain came to God on his own terms, not on God's terms. You know, it's possible that what God said was, for this one, we're going to offer animals, okay? And Cain was like, you know what? I'm going to get creative. I think I'm going to freestyle on this one and give him some produce. And God's like, no, 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 no. When you come to me, it's going to be on my terms. It's possible he did that. If Cain didn't come to God in faith, then he must have come to God with a works-based attitude. That's the only other alternative. If it's not by faith, then it's, it's based on some sort of works where we try to earn our right standing with God. And God finds that to be odious. He finds that to be offensive. Offensive. That we think that we can earn a right standing when we actually are guilty, according to him. You know, many people today still hold this view. Uh, We've conducted interviews on campus over the years. And I remember a few years ago, we went around campus and asked a bunch of people like, what do you think it takes to get to heaven? And the overwhelming majority of people who responded said, well, I think it's about being a good person, you know, not being a murderer or a rapist or something like that, just trying to be, like, nice to people or some combination of do unto others as you would like for them to do unto you, right, the golden rule, and that's going to get you into heaven. And yet that view, which I think is the majority view in our culture, stands at odds with what God says. Consider what Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, that it is by grace, that is a gift, that you have been saved through faith. And it's not from yourself. It is a gift of God, not by works so that nobody can boast. In other words, it's not something that you can earn. It's something that God gives to you based on faith. So this directly contradicts what most people in our culture believe, that you can simply... Do some good works to offset the bad things that you've done in your life. And that God is obligated to give you eternal life. And, you know, I think that it doesn't really make much sense for us to sort of set the standard for what God wants. You know, that would be like an armed robber saying, well, I think that anybody who doesn't go out and murder somebody should get probation. That's like setting your own sentence. And so we're really not in a position to be able to determine whether or not God should judge us or determine the standards by which God should accept us. God's the one who sets that. And he says that he demands absolute perfection. And that's really the rub between the human race and God. God says that we stand at odds with him because of the things that we've done wrong. And that as a result, he actually had to take the initiative by sending his own son, Jesus, to come and die for us so that we can have our moral debt erased. And at that point, we can actually forge a relationship with God. And so if you're here tonight and you're maybe confused about what God has to say, maybe you're confused about what It takes to get to heaven. Let's just be very clear. It's not about what you have to do. It's about what God has already done through Jesus Christ. Okay, let's keep reading on. Verse 5, we're told that this made Cain very angry and he looked dejected. You know how that is when you're so pissed, so angry, that you just can't even look the person that you're angry at in the face. This is exactly how Cain must have felt toward God because God rejected him and his sacrifice. And God says, why are you so angry? Why do you look so dejected? You'll be accepted if you do what's right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at your door, eager to control you. He personifies sin, that it's eager to come and master you. But he says you must subdue it and make it and be its master." And so God says, if you will be, you will be accepted if you do what's right. If you look at other translations, it says that you will be lifted up. That's how they render this word accepted. And so essentially what God is saying is you have a chance here. Here's an opportunity for you to turn things around. And I think this speaks a little bit about God's character, who he is. That when we're caught up, when we're ensnared in sin, that he tries to draw us out. He gives us an opportunity to turn things around. He says, if you do what is right, if you act, then your countenance or uh, the way you feel will change. And so really, this describes some relationships between feelings and behavior. You know, on the one hand, we understand that our emotional state affects our behavior. You know, sometimes we feel depressed, and so we turn to drugs and alcohol to sort of numb that pain, to to sort of disassociate from reality, to escape our problems. Or, you know, sometimes bitterness and anger fester inside of us, and then when we encounter the person that we feel that way toward, We lash out in anger. And so sometimes our emotional estate uh, will affect our behavior. But in this case, we see that our behavior also affects our feelings. That a change of attitude or behavior can actually change the way that we feel. And that's exactly what God is proposing here. He says, if you... Do what is right. If you turn to me, won't your your face be lifted up? In other words, won't you feel better because you've done the right thing? You know, imagine if you're driving down the road and, you know, your 1994 Honda Civic is, you know, causing a, a stir in your neighborhood. And as you're driving along to go to work, you notice that your check engine light came on. Okay? What do you do in that situation? Well, one course of action would be to stop, jump into your trunk, grab some masking tape, and put it over the check engine light. (laughs) Like, there, fixed. Then you go drive to work. Or maybe you decide, okay, I'm going to take, I'm going to take some stronger measures here. And so you actually decide that in your free time you're going to actually dismantle the dash and you unscrew the, the light bulb that's right behind the sensor or right behind the, the, the check engine light and it turns off. And you're like, Phew, fix that problem. Right? Okay. I think we all know that the check engine light isn't the real problem. It's 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 there. It's a device that has been designed to tell us that there's a a bigger problem going on with our engine. And likewise, our feelings act as sort of a check engine light. Indicates that there's maybe something going on internally. Something that's going on inside that's really the problem. You know, the resentment, the bitterness, the anger, the jealousy that we feel. Those things may signal that we need to change not only our attitude, but also our behavior if we want some sort of relief from those feelings. Well, God says, if you refuse to do what's right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and master it. You know, it's never easy to take God's discipline. You know, it was, it was hard for him to choke this down, and it's hard for us today to choke down God confronting us about our wrong attitudes and behavior. But if we nurse a sense of self-pity or victimization, we may actually descend into more resentment and bitterness. And I think we've all experienced this. You know, at some point, Cain was uh, standing there, And uh, there was a a subtle shift in his anger where on the one hand, you know, he aimed his hatred and his anger toward God who seemed so hard to please. And then he turned his head and found his brother Abel in his sights. One day we're told, Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And so... His anger issued in murder. You know, you could sort of, I guess, relate to how Cain felt. You know, here's his sibling, the guy who always shows, shows him up as, you know, the, the, the flunk out black sheep son. You know, he's, he's always the guy who gets it right, and I'm always the one who gets it wrong. And at some point... He stops viewing his brother Abel as a brother and starts viewing him as a rival. And a poisonous fire is just building in his gut. And the only thing that's going to quench that fire is his brother Abel's blood. Now look, Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. This wasn't like some sort of crime of passion. This was premeditated. It wasn't like he was just walking through the fields and he saw his brother Abel and he was pissed and decided to kill him. He said, no, let's go out into the fields where he knew he would murder his brother. Afterward, the Lord asked Cain, where is your brother? Where is Abel? Why would God ask this question? I mean, he knows. He's omniscient. He knows exactly what happened to Abel. Why would he phrase this as a question? Answer? Because he was giving Abel a way out. Again, we see at every stage of this, God giving Abel an opportunity to confess, an opportunity to change his behavior. Cain responds with his callous answer. He says, I don't know. Am I my brother's guardian? You know, what am I? I'm not here babysitting. How am I supposed to know where he is? And yet Cain is lying. He knows exactly where his brother is. And so we see this really as, you know, we fall into sin, which all of us do. That there is this inclination, this desire to lie, to get our way out of it, to avoid the consequences. But the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you're cursed and banished from the ground which has swallowed your brother's blood. No longer will the ground yield good crops for you. No matter how hard you work, from now on you'll be a homeless wanderer on earth. So this raises the question, why did Cain do this to his brother? What was the motive? Well, John actually clues us in in 1 John 3 verse 12. He says, don't be like Cain who murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. It was jealousy. It was the fact that God accepted his brother Abel and didn't accept him that caused him to be angry. And, you know, we get a taste of this too, I think, as we uh, are out there in the world trying to live for God, even though we make lots of mistakes. You know, I've been in many situations where I'm hanging out with a friend who doesn't regard themselves as a Christian. We're, you know, out at a bar, drinking, having a good time, and the conversation's real relaxed until you bring up God, or that you're a Christian, or you know, if you decide you're going to j-bomb in the middle of the conversation, and at that point, you know, the, the tone of the conversation completely changes. There, it either goes silent, and you know, the conversation pretty much ends, or uh, the person might actually become angry at you. Have you ever experienced that? Where they just, you know, this, this anger out of nowhere. And John explains that the reason why people react this way is because, you know, when you're trying to follow God, your way of life exposes, you know, the wrongdoing in other people's lives by contrast. Not that we're more righteous than people, but that they see that we're living for God. And they know they aren't. Well, he says, your brother's blood cries out for me to the ground. You know, it's kind of like an expression that we use today, that this is, you know, uh, an injustice, that there, there, needs, there's an outcry for justice for this wrongdoing. Hebrews 12, 24 says, though, that Jesus' blood speaks of forgiveness instead of crying out for vengeance, like blood, the blood of Abel. And so Abel's blood cries out for vengeance, for justice, whereas Jesus' blood that he shed actually cries out for mercy and forgiveness. Well, Cain replied to the Lord, my punishment is just too great for me to bear. You banished me from the land and from your presence. You've made me a homeless wanderer. Anyone who's going to find me is going to want to kill me, God. (laughs) You know, he's sitting there whining, getting into this uh, self-pity mode. And yet, he doesn't care that uh, his brother's dead. You know, you would imagine that if Cain was actually repentant, if he felt remorse for what he had done, that the moment God confronted him and busted him out for killing his brother, that he would burst into tears and say, I did it. Can't believe I did it. I'm so sorry. And yet, all he cares about is himself. All he cares about are the consequences that he now has to face. Not about what he had done. Well, he says, anyone who finds me will kill me. Which indicates that there are many people populating the earth by this time. As we'll find out later, Adam and Eve had many children and they continued to populate the earth. And so apparently, Abel's family his relatives probably were angry and wanted vengeance well the lord replied no for i will give a sevenfold punishment to anyone who kills you then the lord put a mark on cain to warn him anyone who might or warn anyone who might try to kill him i don't know if this was a physical mark or maybe a hedge of protection that he was putting over cain but he protected cain even though cain committed this violent act of murder so Cain left the Lord's presence and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So there you have the story of Cain and Abel. Now I want to spend just a real short amount of time looking at some genealogies. I remember as a real young Christian, I was like, "Okay, I'm going to read the Bible cover to cover," and I would start, and I would um, start reading uh, Genesis and then i would hit these long genealogies and the next thing i know i was i would wake up the next morning right <laughs> but i do think that these genealogies have some interest for us because i think that especially in our culture today there are parts of genesis 1 through 11 that raise people's eyebrows they're like are you serious I'm supposed to believe some of these things that are contained in the book of genesis well, Cain had sexual relations with his wife, again. And she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Enoch had a son named Erad. Erad became the father of Mahujael. Mahujael became the father of Methushel. Methushel became the father of Lamech. And Matt, Lamech married two women. The first was named Ada. The second was named Zillah. This contains some significance because we see that this is the first case of polygamy. Apparently, Lamech decided that he was going to disregard what God said about marriage, that it was going to be between a man and a woman that would be a lifelong monogamous commitment. And yet Lamech decides to throw this off. Well, Adah, one of Lamech's wives, gave birth to Jabal, who was the first of those to raise livestock and live in tents. His brother's name was Jubal, the first of all who play the harp and flute. And Lamech's other wife, Zillah, gave birth to a son named Tubal-Cain, and he became an expert in forging tools of bronze and iron. And so Lamech had three sons, Jabal, Jubal, and (laughs) Tubal-Cain. Apparently, Jabal was um, into raising livestock. Jubal was talented in music and uh, was a musician, And then Tubalcane apparently was an expert in forging tools from bronze and iron. Now, some people who are familiar with ancient history would say to themselves, now, (laughs) we know when the Iron Age was, and it certainly wasn't during this period. Um, It might be that at this time, they were able to smelt iron, but the technology was lost and then rediscovered. That's one possibility. Another might be that... um, This was, um, you know, meteoric iron that they were using to fashion uh, tools with. And so it wasn't the the iron that we know of. It was sort of a mixture. Well, anyway, Adam had sexual relations. Oh, I read that part already. Now, Genesis 5. This is an entire genealogy. And and I'm not going to read every single verse here. But there are some observations I'd like to make. This is the written account of descendants of Adam. When God created human beings, he made them to be like himself. He created male and female, blessed them and called them human. And Adam was 130 years old. He became the father of a son who was just like him in his very image. His name was Seth. After the birth of Seth, Adam lived another 800 years, had other sons and daughters. Adam lived 930 years and then he died. Seth was 105 years old when he became the father of Enosh and Enosh... After the birth of Enosh, Seth lived another 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Seth lived 912 years, and then he died. Enosh became the father of Canaan, and Enosh lived 905 years, and then he died. Canaan became the father of Mahalalel, and Canaan lived 910 years, and then he died. Okay, I'm not going to read through uh, all of these, but there are a few things that we should take note of. Okay, some people have added the lifespans of all these individuals in this chronology along with all the other biblical figures and have speculated that the earth has only been about 10,000 years old. And if you added these lifespans contained in this genealogy, human history would have started about 6,000 years ago. And so... Of course, modern people look at this with a bit of skepticism, and they should. Because when you look at these genealogies, um, they aren't exact. You know, a lot of times when you look at these genealogies in the Old Testament, there are big gaps. And usually what they do is they pick the prominent figures of these families and describe them or mention them. We see the same exact thing in Matthew and in Luke when those authors actually give Jesus' uh, genealogy, that there are gaps. And we know that there are gaps because we can look in the Old Testament and see that there are many other people, figures, between those two individuals. Secondly, it stretches modern people's credulity to imagine people living for 800-plus years. So what do you do with that? That raises a lot of questions, right? Right? Some biblical scholars actually try to explain these long lifespans away by suggesting that these names actually refer to tribes of people. So for example, Seth was 105 years old and he became the father of Enosh. And they would say that Seth lived to be 105 years old and that when it says Seth lived another 807 years, that this refers to his family. And its lifespan. But you run into some problems here. Because if you take this stance, what do you do with guys like Noah? And we'll find out later with Enoch, who from the very beginning, Moses regards as individuals, people. So it really breaks down. I guess the text sort of binds us to view these as literal years, Which is uh, problematic. But I think, you know, we could probably say a couple things about this. First of all, it's very interesting that archaeologists have discovered these extensive king lists from Sumerian and Egyptian cultures, which actually name kings who lived for thousands of years. Not to mention, you know... For the person who doesn't really believe in the supernatural, something like this just seems completely impossible. But I think that if you decide to step over into the supernatural, or at least open the door to the supernatural, by suggesting that maybe God exists, then the possibility of this actually grows immensely. Think about it this way. Most Christians believe that once we die, we will actually live in resurrected physical bodies for all of eternity. Is it that much of a stretch to believe then that human beings live to be 100 or 800 years old? If we're willing to admit that people will live maybe for thousands of years after they die in their resurrected physical bodies? I think we have to trust what God says here. All right, well. Here's the rest of the genealogy. Jared became the father of Enoch. Enoch became the father of Methuselah. After the birth of Methuselah, Enoch lived in close fellowship with God for another 300 years. And he lived a total of 365 years walking in close fellowship with God. Then one day he disappeared because God took him. So apparently, right in the middle of this, Enoch lived in close fellowship with God, and God apparently took him up before he died. One of the things that you'll notice in this genealogy list, by comparison to other genealogy lists in Genesis, the refrain in Genesis chapter 5 is, Jared Jared begat so-and-so, and and then he died, and then he died, and then he died. That's the constant refrain throughout Genesis chapter 5. And right in the middle of that, we see that Enoch lived in close fellowship with God, and yet he did not die. You know, Hebrews 11.5 comments that by faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he didn't experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And in the context, God was pleased with his faith. You know, many of us have experienced relatives or friends who have died. And on just an intuitive level, we sense that that death isn't really the way things should be, that it's abnormal. You know, when you you watch a relative lose their battle with cancer and die, you're seeing the effects of the fall. When you bury your friend who had many more years to live, You're seeing the effects of the fall. When when parents feel agony and grief as they bury their toddler, they're experiencing the effects of the fall. And yet, we see God gives us really a type of what he's going to do in the future. That God will spare us from eternal death because of our faith. Because of our trust in Christ. Well, finally, Methuselah became the father of Lamech. Lamech became the father of a son and named his son Noah, which literally means rest. For he said, may he bring us relief from our work and a painful labor of farming this ground that the Lord has cursed. Well, it turns out Noah's going to bring much more than that. He's going to bring salvation to people. And we'll find out about that next week. All right. Let's draw some conclusions. I think the first thing is that when you look at Cain's life, what he did here, you know, he really tried to approach God on his own terms. And I think, you know, uh, some of us in this room can relate to that. You know, as I was describing people who tell themselves, I'm just going to do these things to please God. Make him happy with me. Hopefully he'll accept me into heaven. According to the Bible, that's you coming to God on your own terms. That's you dictating the terms of your entrance into heaven. And God says, I'm just not going to accept you based on your good works. In fact, that offends me that you think any sort of good works are going to erase all the things that you've ever done. You know, the resulting conflict with God led to murderous rage. And, um, you know, the conflict that we have with God leads to anger, resentment, not only towards God, but also towards others. That's part of the effects of the fall. You know, it's interesting that killing Abel didn't solve any of Cain's problems. A lot of times we feel like this person this thing, this circumstance, it's blocking me from true happiness. And yet that's not really our problem. There's something really deeper. You know, he could do away with the irritant of his brother's faithfulness to God, but he couldn't run away from his own bitter heart. You know, that's the problem, is that we think, if only this thing would change, if only I could get away from these people, if only I had this other thing, then... I'd be happy. Then things would be different for me. And yet God says, you know the real problem in your life? It's not something that you can escape because it's going to follow you wherever you go, and that's you. Your problem resides right here in your heart. And the only way that that's going to change is by allowing God to transform you. And the Bible says that Any self-salvation project you have in mind to try to fix your life on your own, it's doomed to fail. The only thing that's going to change you is what God has done through Jesus Christ. God promises that he can change you from the inside out. And so really, you're faced with a question. How am I going to respond to God? Like Cain, he might be actually confronting you. For your own good, so that you will finally turn to him. Maybe he's giving you a way out. And the question is, are you going to respond in faith? Or are you going to do what Cain did and resist? All right. Yeah, Lord, I'm just uh, blown away by the continuity that I see in the Old and New Testament. Just how from the very beginning, it's always been about faith. It's never been about our works or trying to earn your favor. Um, thank you that, uh, you give us a way out. Thank you that you have a plan of redemption that you started even back in uh, Genesis chapter three to try to, to restore humanity and to try to, um, reconnect yourself with us. And, um, we thank you that you're a God who takes an interest in us and hasn't decided to, to, to discard us because of our rebellion, but that, uh, you love us and continue to pursue us. And finally, I pray for those of us, Lord, who uh, may sense that we don't have a relationship with you and uh, also feel as if maybe you are uh, calling on us to turn to you and to receive Christ. Pray that if anybody feels that, that they would uh, just turn to you in their hearts and uh, receive the forgiveness that you freely offer through your son. We thank you for anyone who did that in Jesus' name. Amen.